Uh, if I had to pick any text from the book of Exodus to teach, it would be this passage. Uh, I might say luck of the draw, uh, if I believed in luck, but I uh, don't. Uh, holy chance, Jeremy Taylor said. Um, Jesus talked about those treasures that we find in his storehouse, some new and some old. There are a lot of ways to understand that text, but my own understanding is that the new treasures are the new things that we find as we read and ponder the Word. The old treasures are those oldies but goodies that uh, we have seen before, those rich nuggets that we love to go back to again and again. And for me, this is one of those treasures. Uh, It's a heartwarming story, but it begins on a chilling note. It is what J.R.R. Tolkien would call a eucatastrophe, something that starts out irrevocably wrong or seeming uh, to be irrevocably wrong, but turns out to be right in the end. Uh, Let me begin reading with verse 1. Chapter 33, if you have a Bible, Exodus 33, chapter 1. The Lord said to Moses, Leave this place. That would be Mount Sinai. Israel was was camped at the foot of the mountain. You and the people you brought up out of Egypt and go up to the land I promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, I will give it to your descendants. The land, of course, is the land of Canaan. I will send an angel before you and drive out the Canaanites, Amorites, Hittites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, but I will not go with you. Uh, The backdrop of this uh, verse, of course, is chapter 32 in the story of the golden calf. Israel decided to do without the living God, to make it on their own, to take their own dark journey, and uh, God said, "I, uh, I can't go with you. He is, after all, holy. He will not follow us into the darkness. And uh, so his presence would not go with them. I can't be too hard on Israel. Uh, I know my own uh, heart, as Calvin said, it's a little idle factory. I manufacture one after another. As the psalm puts it, uh, prone to wander. Lord, I know it, prone to leave the God I love. But uh, God loves us enough that he will let us have our own way. As one of the Psalms puts it, he gives us our request, but he sends leanness uh, into our souls. Um, God says to Israel, go your own way, but I cannot go with you. Now, I don't know about you, but that makes me shudder. There are very few descriptions of hell in in the New Testament, or the Old Testament for that matter. Paul's is perhaps the most vivid. He describes hell as the total absence of the power and the presence of God. In an odd sort of way, hell is a provision of God's love. He loves us enough to let us have our way. And if we do not want God, in the end, he will permit us to make that choice. But we go into a world where there's no love, no laughter, no light, nothing nothing that makes life worth living because God is simply not there. Something about that phrase that just sends a cold chill down my spine. 
Augustine, as you know, is probably the most famous Christian theologian of all time, with the exception of the Apostle Paul. Almost all of our Christian thinking goes back to Augustine. Hardly anything new has been uh, discovered since his time. And he was preaching to his congregation in North Africa at one point, and he proposed this wager. Imagine God making a deal with you. Imagine him saying, I'll give you whatever you want, pleasure, power, honor, wealth, freedom, even peace of mind, and a good conscience. Nothing will be a sin. Nothing will be forbidden. Nothing will be impossible for you. You will never be bored, and you will never die. But you will never See my face. Uh, Hell is exactly the right word for what that would be. Now, that's a chilling thought. Uh, It was for Israel as well, that condition of never seeing his face jolted them. And they, as you can read on your own, they uh, took off their jewelry, their ornamentation. They put on garments of mourning and they repented. Now, uh, the story writer is, is a, he writes good narrative because he leaves us in suspense. He doesn't tell us the result of that action. The question is, now, will God relent? Will he, at least from the standpoint of appearances, change his mind and go along with Israel? We don't know because he doesn't tell us. He won't tell us until chapter 34, so you won't find out until next week. But it's almost as though uh, this is a a great production, and the producer says at this point, cut, now I want a a tight shot of Moses out in his old tent in the wilderness. Because the focus of of the narrative shifts away from the people of God, Israel, onto their leader, Moses, the man who is known as the friend of God. And we're given here an explanation of that term and why he had such a special relationship with God, what it was that set Moses apart and made him the unique uh, leader that he was. Verses 7 through 11. Moses used to take a tent and pitch it outside the camp some distance away, calling it the tent of meeting. Anyone inquiring of the Lord would go to the tent of meeting outside the camp, and whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people rose and stood at the entrances to their tent, watching Moses until he entered the tent. As Moses went into the tent, the pillar of cloud would come down and stay at the entrance while the Lord spoke with Moses. Whenever the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance to the tent, they all stood and worshipped, each at the entrance to his tent. The Lord would speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks with his friend. Then Moses would return to the camp, but his young age, Joshua, son of Nun, did not leave uh, the tent. Now we're told here that Moses used to pitch his tent outside the camp. The uh, verb that's used suggests a, a habitual action. This was his practice. Uh, some distance away. The text emphasizes the fact that he was quite a distance uh, away, far away. Now, this was not the tabernacle because it had not been constructed yet. This was Moses' little pup tent. This was his own personal tent that he pitched. He called it the tent of meeting because that's where he met God, face to face. Uh, The idea of face to face uh, is a Hebrew idiom that means presence to presence. It's not that God actually has a face 
The point is, they met together as one person would meet uh, with another. Further, we're told, anyone inquiring of the Lord would go to the tent of meeting outside the camp. These were troubled people, distressed people, people that were confused by life. And uh, they wanted to find answers to life's dilemmas. So they, they would go to the tent, and there Moses would seek God's face, and then he would come out with an answer. He had something worthwhile to say because he'd been spending time with God. So when Moses went to his tent, the people stood in worshipped. Uh, one version of the Septuagint, probably relying on an oral tradition, adds, they understood that Moses was away when he entered his tent. In other words, no unscheduled visits, no calls on his cell phone, no faxes, no unnecessary interp- uh, interruptions. They left him alone so he could spend time with, with God. They knew the tent was necessary for Moses' nurture and for theirs. As most of you know, what Carolyn and I do is clergy care. Uh, We call this ministry Idaho Mountain Ministries, and we minister to a lot of clergy around the state, mostly in in small churches. We have some 60 couples, uh, pastors and their wives, that we're we're involved with on a personal uh, basis. Uh, This is one of the texts that I very often use in talking to my men Because they need to understand that while their presence is essential, they have to spend time with people, counseling, listening, praying, caring for people's souls. That's their job. Uh, The uniqueness of the Christian ministry is that we, above all other occupations, care for people's souls. We're spiritual mentors. We're spiritual guides. Our, Our desire is to lead people into a deeper and more intimate relationship with with God. But life-giving presence depends upon absence, those hours when we're away, when we're out of the loop, repairing ourselves, preparing ourselves through solitude, worship, reading, study, reflection, and prayer. Absence prepares us to be present in a way we could not otherwise be. That's why I'm delighted when a congregation stands up and worships when their pastors spend time alone with God. Henry Nguyen uh, wrote this in his journal, Our way of being most present requires times of absence, prayer, writing, solitude. Our community needs us, but not as a constant presence. Our community also needs our creative absence. Paul uses an interesting metaphor for the ministry. He describes us as stewards of the mysteries of God. The mysteries of God have to do with those things that are revealed in the Word. A steward is a butler. It's as though the Word is a cupboard into which we go and we take the good things of God and bring them out uh, to God's people. It's a very apt description of our, our function, our purpose. George MacDonald put it this way, there's a chamber, a chamber in God himself, which none can enter but the one, the individual, that particular person, out of which chamber that man has to bring revelation and strength for his brethren. This is that for which he was made to reveal the sacred things of the Father. We go into God's presence and we, there we garner the secret things of God and we bring them out to his people. Now, that's true of your shepherds, but it also ought to be true of all of us. We need to be spending time 
with God. I don't care how hectic our lives are or how busy they are. We need to carve out time in the day, sometime during the day. Morning, I believe, is best for many people because that's when they're most alert. If you're an evening person, it can be done in the evening. But we need to spend time in our little tent, reading the Word, listening to what God has to say to us, and talking to Him about what we're learning. Then we have something worthwhile to bring out to others. Now, your, uh, your tent might be a little corner of your house somewhere where you're away from uh, the matting crowd. It may be, uh, may be a coffee shop to which you go in the mornings, maybe your office. You have a few moments before things begin to, to accumulate on your desk to spend with God. Uh, Susanna Wesley uh, had 19 children. You can imagine what that was like. And uh, yet she found time to spend time with God. She would sit in the corner with her apron over her head and, and read her Bible. And woe be to the child that bothered her. But that was the secret of her influence. And I believe the secret of the two Wesley boys that came out of that, out of that, out of that family. We can find time to spend in God's presence if we're willing to do so. It's sometimes difficult to do, but it's an absolute priority. Now, uh, in the next section from 12 through 16, we're permitted to be a mouse in the corner of Moses' tent. I uh, would say a church mouse, perhaps, and uh, overhear one of his visits with God. This is what happened when Moses met with God. Moses said to the Lord, you've been telling me lead these people, but you've not let me know whom you'll send with me. You have said, I know you by name, and you found favor with me. If you're pleased with me, teach me your ways, so that I may know you and continue to find favor with you. The Lord replied, my presence will go, will go with you, and I'll give you rest. Then Moses said, if your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. In other words, Lord, if you're not going, then I'm not going either. I spent a little bit of time this week trying to think through Moses' state of mind at at this point, and several things occurred to me. One, I think he was dreadfully lonely. He had his brother and his sister and the 70 elders of Israel, but if you know anything at all about leadership, you may be in a crowd, but you're all alone. And I think Moses felt the weight of that loneliness to be a huge burden. I think all people in positions of leadership feel that loneliness. Elijah certainly did after his great triumph over the priests of Baal at Mount Carmel. After Jezebel put out a warrant for his life, he ran into the desert and he cried. He sat under a broom bush, whatever that is, and he cried out, Lord, I'm the only one left around here. I'm all alone. It was true, of course. There were thousands of prophets who were loyal to God. But as far as Elijah was concerned, he was, he was all alone. Paul planted churches all over what today is Turkey, then is Asia Minor, Iconium, Lystra, Derby, Colossae, Ephesus. Later, when he's, he's in prison, just before Nero beheaded him, he writes a letter to his, his good friend Timothy, and he says, All who are in Asia have forsaken me. 
Paul's all alone in that, in that cold cell. And even Jesus, when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane, felt that terrible loneliness. His disciples went to sleep, and Jesus was left all alone. There's a wonderful story that grows out of the 4th century church, a man by the name of Athanasius who stood tall when every other theologian in the Roman, Holy Roman Empire caved in. There was a deacon by the name of Arius who was teaching heresy that, that Jesus was a created being and not, not God in the flesh. He's like God, but he wasn't, he wasn't God. And Athen, Athanasius stood for the truth of the deity of Christ. He, four times the, the Holy Roman Emperor banished him to the desert, kept coming back, fighting for his cause. In the end, he was standing before the emperor, the most powerful man on the face of the earth in that day. And the emperor said to him, You pertinacious old man, don't you know the whole world is against you? And Athanasius replied in those words that's come down through church history, then Athanasius is against the whole world. Athanasius contramundum in Latin. Terrible loneliness that, that, that leaders feel in Moses was not going to go unless God accompanied him. And then his path was unknown. He knew the area around Sinai because he had herded Jethro's flocks there, but he did not know his route through the wilderness to Canaan. There was the huge responsibility of the people, restless people, angry people, people always wanting to go back to, to Egypt, a difficult crowd to lead. And then his own weariness. Leaders get weary. Later on in the book of Numbers, Moses cries out, I cannot bear these people on my back any longer. So loneliness, uncertainty about the future, the heavy responsibility of the people, his own yearning for rest. And in the face of these enormous demands, Moses had but one request of God. I want to know who you are. That's the key question. Teach me your ways that I may know you. There's no greater prayer and no prayer more certain to be answered. Teach me your ways. This was Moses' prayer at the burning bush. If you go back in your mind to Exodus 3, Moses was herding Jethro's flock in, in the wilderness. He had done so for 40 years. It was the most humbling, debilitating set of circumstances I can imagine. He'd been a prince in Egypt, trained in the best schools in Egypt. And now he'd been stripped of his dignity and self-regard. He didn't know who he was or what he was doing. And he, and he came across a little uh, sage bush that was on fire. And I'm sure he'd seen this phenomenon many times because lightning often ignited these creosote bushes out in the desert. And, but it wasn't being consumed. So he wanders over. He says, I want to see this great sight. And while he's standing there, God speaks to him out of the bush. And he, and he calls him to be his man to deliver Israel out of Egypt. Now, had this happened 40 years before, I believe Moses would have said, I'm your man. I've got all the training, the shots, the moves. I, I can do it. But at this point in his life, he's totally stripped of any sense of self-worth. And he says, who am I? Who am I? That I should lead my people out. And God says, in effect, Moses, it doesn't matter who you are. What matters is who I am. And so Moses then asks a $64,000 question, who are you? And God says, I am. That's who I am. And that became his name. 
the name Yahweh or Jehovah, it's translated in the King James Version, is based on the Hebrew verb Ahiyah, which means to be. I am. Now, scholars look at that word and they say, well, that means he's a self-existent one. But that's cold comfort to me. I think what God was saying is, Moses, I am whatever you need. What do you need? Moses says, give me your name. And God says, this is my name. What do you need? My sufficiency is all you need for your inadequacy. Do you need wisdom? Do you need strength? Do you need purpose? Do you need power? Whatever you need, that's what I am. And Moses had learned in times of crisis how important it is to know who God is because that is the only resource on which we can comfortably rely. Paul echoes this prayer, I have suffered the loss of all things that I may gain Christ. I want to know Him and the power of His resurrection. Let me tell you a little bit about my own uh, journey. Uh, I became a Christian as a child. My mother led me to Christ when I was a very small child. I drifted all through high school, through most of college. I was a Christian, but wasn't identified with any uh, particular Christian group. And uh, in my junior year, I was uh, contacted by a navigator, a man by the name of Gordon Donaldson, that I'll never forget. And he introduced me to the, the TMS, the Topical Memory System, and their uh, plan for studying the Bible. I began to get into the Word. I began to grow a little bit, went off into the military, and, and those were times of growth for me, and then off into, into seminary. When I came out of seminary, I, I was for years a minister to, to university students, and the intent of my heart during those times was to serve God, to build a ministry, to do something large for God. Through those years, I think my focus began to, to move away from what I was doing from God toward my own personal righteousness. I was growing by fits and starts. I was struggling. certainly was not a righteous man. But that began to be my prayer, that I might be a, a, a godly man. But as I have gotten older, my, my yearning, my longing now, my heart is to know God, to know who He is. To develop intimacy with Him. And I think that's the normal course of events. I think that's the pilgrimage that God takes us all from. From those first steps as a disciple on into a, a hunger, a yearning to know God. One of my patron saints is the poet who wrote Psalm 73. I have no idea who he was, but uh, life was hard for him. He looked around. He couldn't see anything going right. He wondered what the good life was. But he finally came to this conclusion. He said, God took me by the hand when I was conceived, and he led, he's been leading me all through life. And, and at the end of my life, he's going to take me into glory. Now, uh, philosophers going all the way back to Aristotle say there are really only three questions we can ask about anything, and they're the three essential questions. One is, what is a thing? What is its essence? What is its origin? And what is its purpose? And that, that psalm solves all three of those uh, dilemmas, answers those questions. What are we? We're children of God. Where do we come from? From the hand of God. He leads us all through our life, and at the end of our life, 
He will take us by the hand and receive us into glory. It's one of those little glimpses of heaven in, in, the, in the Old Testament. So ultimately, my goal is heaven and home. That's where I belong. That's what all of life is about. It's preparing us to live eternally in, in, in God's presence. So the psalmist recognizes that's what life is all about. It's walking with God. It's knowing Him. It's loving Him. Nothing else matters. And he sums it up by saying, The nearness of God is my good. In other words, that's the good life. It's not having health, wealth, all the things that we usually describe as the good life. It's knowing God. As Paul put it, that I might know Him. And the fellowship of His sufferings being made conformable to His death. Now, uh, in these final verses, 17 through 20, we uh, come to understand what Moses learned about God. The Lord said to Moses, I'll do the very thing you've asked because I'm pleased with you and I know you by, by name. Then Moses said, show me your glory. Uh, for some reason, when I read this, uh, that phrase, show me your glory, a couple of weeks ago when I started preparing, I thought of the uh, infamous uh, phrase in Jerry Maguire, show me the money. Uh, if you remember what happened, Rod Tidwell, this fictitious uh, Arizona Cardinal football player, you know, has, has Jerry Maguire for his agent. And Tidwell actually has it pretty much together. He understands priorities much better than McGuire does because his family comes first. But he has McGuire shout over the phone, show me the money, show me the money, show me the money. And the whole thing begins to sound absurd after a while, which is the point, really, that whole exercise. But I thought how often that phrase, show me the money, overwrites the greater phrase, show me your glory. Because money can become a huge obstacle to knowing God. Somehow we have to get around that. To To the thing that life is all about, which is knowing God. And loving Him and being loved. So the answer, in answer to Moses' plea, the Lord said, I'll cause all my goodness to pass in front of you. And I'll proclaim my name, which is Yahweh, the Lord. In your presence, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I'll have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But he said, you cannot see my face, for no one may see, my, may see me and live. Uh, there are a number of different terms that, that are used here for God's character, His name, His presence. They all mean essentially the same thing. I will cause my goodness to pass in front of you. God is good. I hope you know that. Um, there's a wonderful line in the, in the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe where Mr. Beaver is talking to the children. He reminds them that... Uh, well, they, they ask, is, is Aslan safe? And Mr. Beaver says, safe? No, he's not safe. He's the king. But he's good, I tell you. He's good. That's what we have to know. He may be the Lord of the universe. He may be the holy God of heaven. But, and he's not safe. But he, but he is good. He is good. We tend to throw that term around, relativize it. We talk about good old boys. You know, We can't. We can't look at God that way. He's absolutely good. There's not one taint of, of evil or anything bad about Him. He is totally, absolutely, infinitely good. There was a, a man once who came to Jesus and said, Good teacher. And he started to ask a question. Jesus interrupted. Whoa, wait, 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 wait. 
So why are you calling me good? There's no one good but God. Now, he's not disclaiming his own deity, nor is he saying that, that he, he was not good. What he was doing was testing this man's concept of goodness, because we tend to throw that, that term around in a, in, a, in a much too loose way. When we say God is good, we mean he is absolutely good. And the two elements of his goodness that are singled out here are his grace and his mercy. Did you catch that? I'll make all my goodness pass before me, before you. And I will have mercy and I will have compassion. First of all, he's gracious. He's full of grace. Grace is the gift of the love of God. And it's free. All you have to do is take it. F.B. Meyer said, nothing of good in us has attracted God to us. He loves us because he will love us. And when once he has set his love upon us because he would, he will not withdraw it in spite of our sin, our wandering, our waywardness. He who loved us because he would love us will continue to love us because he will. It's a very complex way of saying that God is absolutely free. He doesn't love us because there's some intrinsic quality in us that makes us lovable, even when we're like the little girl with a curl in the middle of her forehead, and sometimes we're horrid, he still loves us. That's grace. And that's the goodness of God that draws men and women to repentance, Paul says. Secondly, he's compassionate. God is just. He wouldn't be God if he weren't. But that isn't all he is. Where in the world would we be if he were only just? So much of our sin is due to ignorance and blindness and Darkness and waywardness. I don't know about you. I don't want justice. I want compassion and mercy. Uh, David, who certainly needed God's mercy, if anyone did, wrote a commentary on this prayer. David, you know, uh, committed adultery with his best friend's wife and then killed his best friend. And uh, reflecting on this passage in Exodus 33 and what was revealed to Moses about the character of God, he wrote these, Lord, these words, The Lord made known his ways to Moses, his deeds to the people of Israel. It's precisely the same phrase that you find in Exodus 33. Then David enumerates God's ways. The Lord is... So he's not talking about his works in creation. He's talking about his character. Uh, the Lord is compassionate and gracious. Same two words are used in Exodus 33. Slow to anger, abounding in love. You will not always accuse, nor will he harbor his anger forever. doesn't hold grudges. That's the point. It's a contrast between God's generosity and our heavy-handed wrath. Love, our, we, like, we like to keep quarrels going. We nurse our grievances. God, though infinitely wrong, not only tempers wrath with justice, but did so at terrible cost to himself. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. David said, where would we be if he did? For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us. These immeasurable distances give us some indication of the immeasurable love of God. He has taken our sins and planted them in the deepest part of the sea. As the little girl said, then he put up a sign that said, no fishing allowed. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on him. For he knows how we're formed. He remembers 
that we're dust. He knows how hard it is to be what he wants us to be. He's like a father who has compassion on a dwarfed and crippled child. See, most of us learn what John learned. It's what we all learn as we grow older, that God is love. Moses learned it through his visits with God and the personal communication he had with God. John learned it by laying on Jesus' chest. Saw Jesus in all of his acts and all of his kindness. He reveled in his love for him, for John. The book of John is anonymous. The gospel of John, as you know, is not attributed to any author. He always refers to himself, not as John, but as that disciple that Jesus loved. It's not that Jesus loved him more. It's that he was utterly blown away by the fact that Jesus loved him. And thus he described himself as that disciple Jesus loved. He was staggered by by that fact. He writes, no one has ever seen God. It's the only Son who is close to the Father's heart who has made Him known. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father. And that's enough for us, Jesus answered. Don't you know me, Philip? Even after I've been with you such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. You want to know who God is? Read the Gospels. That's where we find out who God is. Watch Jesus as he moves among paralytics and widows, people with leprosy. One of the most poignant scenes in the New Testament is that scene where the leper turns up with his loathsome sores, and Luke says he hugged him. Most people wouldn't be, stand within ten feet of them. You love the little children, the little dirty Smelly street urchins that ran up and down the streets of Jerusalem. He put them on his lap and he hugged them and, and he loved them. In contrast to others in his day, he showed unusual tenderness toward those with a history of sexual sin. The Samaritan woman at the well. The woman who washed his feet with her hair. Simon said if he were the Messiah, he would know who she is. It's because he precisely knew who she was and what she was that he could be her Messiah. The woman caught in the act of adultery. John Dunn said, In Jesus we have a great physician who knows our natural infirmities, for he had them. And he knows the weight of our sins, for he paid a dear price for them. And then, of course, there is the cross, which is the greatest expression of God's love for us. As we see it in Christ, there is no greater love than that a man lay down his life for his friends. Now there's a, a final note here, verses 21 through 22, and our time is almost gone. Remember Moses' request, show me your glory. So the Lord said, there's a place near me where you may stand on a rock. When my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft in the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will remove my hand and you will see my back, but my face must not be seen. Now there's mystery here. These are anthropomorphisms. God does not have a face and he doesn't have a back. He's a spirit. As a matter of fact, the word face simply means presence. 
And the word back is not the normal word for back, the anatomical back. There is a Hebrew word for back. So it's always used for that portion of our body. This is another word. It's the word akor. It means after. After effects. That's the idea. See, God's glory passed by. This blaze of glory. And all Moses could see was the after effects, the afterglow of his glory. See, we only see of God in this world what Job calls the edges of his ways, just the fringes. You look uh, at the cover of your bulletin, the, the entire chapter in which Job makes that statement is found there. He talks about the immensity of the universe, the greatness of it, the wonder of God's creative skill. And he says, that's just the edges, just the fringes of his ways. Paul states the same idea as a paradox in, in his, his prayer in Ephesians 3. He prays that we may know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. You ever thought about that? Know something you can't know? <laughs> See, that's his point. We can we only know a little bit of God's love. We only see the edges, the fringes, the after effects. But we cannot see the full extent of God's love for us because if we did, we could not bear it. It would crush us. Or our hearts would burst. But we can see some measure of the love of God in the face of Christ. Uh, I finished my message on Friday and I was doing some chores around the house and a song popped into my mind. I don't think I've thought of this song for 50 years. I don't know where it came from. And I can only remember the first line. I had to go look it up. Could It's a Frederick Lehman's song, The Love of God. Could we with ink the ocean fill, and were the skies of parchment made, were every stock on earth a quill, and every man a scribe by trade? To write the love of God above would drain the oceans dry, nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. And what I had forgotten was the last verse. The love of God is greater far than tongue or pen can ever tell. It goes beyond the highest star and reaches to the lowest hell. The guilty pair, that's Adam and Eve and us, everyone, the, the guilty pair bowed down with care. God sent his son to win. His erring son he reconciled and pardoned from all sin. You understand what he's saying? This immeasurable immense, incomprehensible love of God is all focused on one thing, the cross, in which He came to reconcile the world to Himself. I want to end with a story I've told before, but it fits too well not to tell it again. Forgive me. Many of you have not heard it, I'm sure. I've told it in years. But George MacDonald, in one of his books called The Flight of the Sparrow, tells the story of a little girl, Barbara Whitchcoat. Uh, her parents died when she was a small child. She was sent to her uncle to live. Her uncle was a diamond merchant. And her uncle uh, told her, and you have the run of the house, but uh, the, you know, these are the house rules. Don't go into my, my office because that's where I keep my diamonds and I have them scaled and organized. Please don't go in there and play with them. Well, of course, being a curious little girl, that's exactly what she did. So she went into his, his office and his workshop and she fooled around with his diamonds and got them all out of sorts. And, and she went back to her room. She began to feel very guilty. and She didn't know what to do with herself. And that night she couldn't sleep. She tossed and turned. Finally she gets up. She runs into his bedroom and she shakes him awake. And he 
sits up, comes out of a sound sleep, and she says, uh, Uncle, Uncle, I, I got into your diamonds. I feel terrible. I want to die. Kill me. Kill me. And her uncle said, I will, my dear, like this. And he threw his arms around her, and he smothered her face with kisses. And George MacDonald, in his inimitable, inimitable way, says, this is the avuncular, uh, uncle-like, the avuncular love of God. We are killed by his kisses. That's the love of God, the immeasurable love of God. Amen. Let's pray. What mystery all, the immortal dies. That you should die for us, Lord, is incomprehensible. That all of your love was focused on that one dark Friday when you hung upon the cross and bore our sins in your body. There is no greater love. And our prayer, Lord, in the years ahead might be that might be Moses' plea and Paul's plea, just that we might know you. This is the one prayer that is sounds so good to your to your ears and the one which you will always answer. So reveal yourself to us in greater measure day by day, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.